Let's pray. Lord, you are God. You are Lord of heaven and earth. You have created us and you have made us for your glory that we may know you, that we may know your word, know your truth, know that the life that we have in you in abundance. Lord, as we look to your word today, we look to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 8, Lord. May we be humbled, but Lord, may with every word, with every breath, may we praise your name and uh, may that be true for us today as we uh, look at your word and, and as we um, grow together as the body of Christ. So Lord, may you be honored and glorified and may this be glorifying to you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. May have a seat. So, for those who may not know me, I'll just do a formal introduction so we're on the same page here. Um, my name is Austin. I've been living in Nipwin. In September will be two whole years. Wow. And then other people have been here their entire lives. So, yeah. Um, so I've been attending Nipwin Bible College since I came to Nipwin, and Emmanuel Baptist Church has been my home church uh, since that time. Um, so I've been so blessed to be a part of this church, to be a part of this family, um, and I've been, I received many opportunities to serve uh, this body, whether that be in music, doing sound, or working with our young adults group. So um, that's a little bit about me, and hopefully I'm not a foreign face. Hopefully I'm a little familiar. But So the Psalms, as we know them to be, they're songs that praise the Lord. They acknowledge His greatness. They share in His goodness. They worship His name. That is God's word. These Psalms contain humble responses of worship to God's people, to their Lord. So when these Psalms were composed, they came from a variety of scenarios and different moments in the lives of God's people. There's 150 different Psalms but they all are different in their own way. But think of the different types of psalms. Praise psalms, lament, thanksgiving, wisdom. All of these psalms share in the expression of worship to God, though they may differ in the way that they were composed. They all worship God for who he is and for all that he has done. So why, why do I mention this? In Psalm 8, the psalmist David praises the Lord for his greatness and his majesty that is displayed in all of creation. In this recognition and praise in the psalm, we'll see that thankfulness, sorrow, wisdom, these will all be responses that come out of one who longs after God's heart, just as we know uh, the psalmist David was, as we know in 1 Samuel 13. So if you have your outline, which will be in your bulletin, this will be helpful to follow along as we uh, go through the psalm, and um, hopefully it uh, grants clarity. So we go to the first point, the majestic name of the Lord. We want to note that uh, if you have your uh, ESV Bible, you'll notice that it says, to the choir master according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David. So this inscription, though there's not an exact interpretation, speculations have been made, and as you may see um, in the footnotes, it gives reference to a musical, a liturgical uh, term. So he knows these psalms would have been sung by the people of God. So it's a safe assumption to make that this was composed in a setting of music to God. So, verse 1 of Psalm 8. 
O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So right off the bat, David starts off with the statement, O Lord, our Lord. So we already know, noticed that David uses the Lord twice. But there's a difference. As we notice with the first Lord, it is all capitalized. Then the second is um, lowercase, should I say. So throughout the Old Testament, we see the use of Lord where the L is capitalized, but the rest will be lowercase in reference to Lord, the Lord, our ruler. And there's also the case where it's capitalized, as we see an example of Exodus when the Lord gives uh, the command, when Moses gives the commandments to the people saying these are from the Lord. So the title Lord is used throughout the entire Old Testament for where an example, yeah, Exodus 3, God said to Moses, I am who I am. When God says these words, these are all capitalized, as we can note. And so whenever we see all capitals in a place of Scripture, we know that this is a reference to the Lord's name, which we know as Yahweh. So this is God's name, and it needs to be honored. It needs to be revered. So in Scripture, in Old Testament, other names would be used for the Lord, but would still be capitalized to show reverence to the Lord. We know the power of the name of the Lord, and we know that these the people of God knew the power of their God as we see throughout scripture. So they desired to honor the Lord in the names that they referenced to him. So this is where we can already start recognizing that the amazing truth in the psalmist's first words, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name. We already see that reverence implies that there's greatness, that there's some kind of importance to the name of the Lord. So I want to go into our one first sub point in this first section and that's in all the earth so when David says majestic is your name in all the earth he doesn't say in the earth but he says in all the earth in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth we know this is Genesis 1-1 and as we read in the next verse Genesis 1-2 the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters so God is the creator and he is everywhere his glory fills the earth Wherever one may be, the majesty of the Lord is there. His majesty fills the entire earth. The psalm tells of the one true God who is the sovereign creator of all things, where everything is subject to his majesty, to his authority. But let's ask the question, what comes to mind when we hear the term majesty? Do we think of royalty, a king and a queen, a throne, a ruler of a country? Maybe we think that power comes with this title, as we know um, in Britain. A king or a queen is viewed as the highest level of authority in a country. It implies that they have a high level of stature, that they have a role of authority over the people they've been placed to govern over. So God's majesty can be compared to this, but we need to know that our understanding of royalty derives from God's majesty. We know because God is the King of kings, he's the Lord of lords. We know that all creation has been formed and it's been given life by God, as we know in Genesis. Nothing exists outside of him, as we see in Revelation 4, John 1, and nothing exists outside of his sovereign rule and his sovereign authority. God's majesty is not restricted to a select part of creation or maybe just a certain people. The psalmist states that God's majesty, his majestic name, is in all the earth, and all the earth is to praise his name. 
So we want to remember that though in the time of David, all of creation did not serve God as the sovereign ruler. All the earth did not submit and serve the Lord. So let's take an example of the enemies of David as we see commonly repeated throughout the Psalms. They plotted against the Lord as we see in Psalm 2. They rose against David, Psalm 3. And they're full of bloodthirst, they're full of deceit, as we see in Psalm 5. And instead of humbly submitting and serving the God of gods and the Lord of lords, they choose to serve themselves, find their own dominion in themselves. So when the psalmist declares the Lord's majesty, yes, all may not know and proclaim the name of the Lord, but the children of God who know the Lord as their Um, ruler as their true Lord, they can say yes. And in submission, they can declare the Lord's name. They can declare his majesty. Second point, above the heavens. So as we see in verse one, in the second part of verse one, you have set your glory above the heavens. So as we do see in verse eight of this psalm, as well as commonly in the Old Testament, birds as we would know them are referred to birds of the heavens in Genesis and the Psalms throughout the Old Testament. So when the psalmist refers to the heavens, this can be referenced that as we see birds in the sky, we hear the crows at the middle of the night. Uh, We can make the connection that the heavens are in reference to the sky. So this was a question that popped up as was going through. Where is heaven? Have any of us not wondered this as children asking our parents, our grandparents, our Sunday school teachers, our elders? If the heavens referred to here are the reference to the skies, then it would be implied that if God's glory is above the heavens, does it just make sense that it's in space, in a galaxy far, far away? Genuinely though, haven't we ever been in wonder of where this place of promise is? Haven't we asked where God's glory finds its resting place, if you will, as we see references in the Old Testament as we will get to? So throughout Scripture, we receive a glimpse and example, Revelation. We see Revelation 21 that the glory will be revealed to us where there's going to be a place where there's no more sorrow, no more death, no more pain. David would have not known the book of Revelation. He wouldn't have had Paul's epistles. He wouldn't have had the words of Jesus in the Gospels. But we do see that the psalms alighting to the dwelling in the Lord's house, we see in Psalm 27, 23, and even 122. We see reference to the house of the Lord, but we can know that the Israelites would have had a little bit of a comprehension of God's glory through the temple of the Lord. We know the tabernacle throughout the entire Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. We know that the temple of the Lord was a place where the Lord was worshipped. Sacrifices were made. This is where the Holy of Holies was, where at once every year, the high priest would go and make, let's say, atonement for uh, the people and, and their sin. And we see this in Leviticus 16. Um, and again, these will be um, on the EBC website, so you can look more into that. The Lord's majestic name was known to his children, as we have, to, as we have covered. He was their Lord, and they were his people. They knew Yahweh as holy. They knew him as sovereign over all things. They knew him as their Lord and ruler. So they submitted to the Lord's command. They knew who God was, and they knew that he deserved all majesty, he deserved all glory, that all of their life was to honor the Lord. 
We can draw from this that just as God's people had a small taste of God's glory, God had set the same glory above the heavens. The NASB uses the word displayed to replace the word set. So God's glory was displayed in the holy place of the temple, and the same glory has been displayed throughout all the heavens. If we think of that picture, that the same glory above the heavens that covers all the heavens was in the midst of the people of God. God's name is so great, and it's full of majesty. So it's amazing that the Israelites could know God in this way, the God of the heavens, the God of the earth. So this is to say that God's majesty and his glory, they go hand in hand. As God has set his glory above the heavens, he makes it known to his people. So as the people know, they are able to declare his majesty. They're able to declare his lordship over them in all the earth. So the third point from the mouths of babies. Excuse me. So this point maybe catches our attention a little bit, but let's read Psalm 8 verse 2. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. So as we have read, the psalmist starts by praising the Lord, praising his majesty and praising his glory that's above the heavens. And now we're talking about babies. As you'll notice in the psalm, this verse doesn't really seem to connect to verse 2 with the glory of the heavens. And even when we go into verse 3, looking at the heavens again, it seems a little bit out of place why uh, the psalmist David references this. So many of us can understand what comes out of babies' mouths. I think we've already heard that this morning a little bit. Babbling, crying, laughter. We can encounter the joy of this, knowing the life that God has provided, that we are able to multiply and fill the earth. But John Piper explains it well when he says, God can make anything he chooses to simply go out of existence. But instead, God chooses to defeat his enemies with babies. So in all seriousness, this is very true for us. God's majesty consists of the Lord being all-powerful. If he created the heavens and the earth, all of creation as we know it, it shouldn't be a question, a debate, that he can use these words of babies, this babbling, to still the enemy and the avenger. God uses the weakness of man to bring praise to his name. So as the enemy and the avenger, they seek to make their name great, to have dominion, they will not succeed. The Lord's majesty is above and it conquers all. So no other name is higher than the Lord's name. And he uses all of creation for his glory in one way or another. So even through babbling babies. We go to our second section here. Section B, the heavens declare. So Psalm 8, verse 3 says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. So we don't know the exact dating of when this psalm was written. But as we see as a mention, we see this mention of the opposition of enemies and avengers. It is safe to assume that this would have been at a time where David was fleeing persecution from his enemies when he was fearing for his life. David could have been in a cave when he was looking to the sky, when he was hiding, looking to the sky, or it could have been some other moment. 
but it would have not been a foreign thing to look up to the sky and see the stars in the night sky. Have you ever went for a late night walk or even just felt like stepping outside to look at the sky? One can look anywhere, in any direction, in any place, and they can witness the beautiful, grand design of God's creation. David looks to the sky, and he sees the dark blue, and he, what covers the sky is the stars, the flickering of constellations, stars glimmering in the night sky. He sees the moon, which gives light to the land. What would have been going through David's mind? when he wrote this psalm and when he said these words. When he was standing in the midst of God's glory, the sky expands and little David here looks up to the sky. What would his thoughts have been? Would he have been amazed by how each star had been placed in its exact place? How they were designed to get off just the right amount of light in the sky? Would he have been in a state of wanting to praise the Lord with all his might, praising him for the blessing of being able to witness God's beauty? Would he have been in a state of fear of the Lord, awestruck by the power that was on display at that night? Notice how David says that all this is the work of God's fingers. The heavens are full of beauty and complexity. We have galaxies unknown that we can't even fathom. All of this work is of God's fingers. Of course, we mean this, it's meant in the figurative sense, but just imagine if this was all created by God's fingertips. Imagine the greatness within the entirety of the Lord, head to toe, and what the Lord could do, what the Almighty can do, as we say. There is no doubt that God's majesty was not on display. There's no question that his majestic name was not spoken through this wonderful sight that David got to see. The heavens declare the glory of God, and as far as east to west, God's glory abounds. So go to point number three, majesty and mankind. For God's majesty to be displayed, there needs to be a display of some sort. Genesis 1 lays this out for us as God created the heavens and the earth and everything within it. Man was part of this creation, as we see in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And God created man with purpose and intention as he did the rest of creation. But we know that man was created differently and that God created man from the dust of the ground. He was formed from the dust and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. See in Genesis 2, 7. As we continue in Psalm 8, we want to keep a finger in Genesis because we're going to see that Psalm 8 is a slight mirroring of the first chapters of Genesis and that this is a picture, an overall picture of God's majesty and man's role within it. So let's look at this first subpoint, mindfulness. So we're going to see in majesty and mankind, we're going to see mindfulness, we're going to see meekness and man's responsibility. Psalm 8, verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? David's expression of the statement could have been one of awe, of wonder, and of fear. Or David could have been overcome with the realization that God's majesty was displayed in the heavens. It was displayed throughout all of the earth. He could have so many thoughts overwhelming his mind. But we see that David sees the majesty of the Lord and he asks this question. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? 
within this statement, we can make the assumption that there maybe seems a bit of insignificance, that man feels insignificant to the great God who created all things. We know that God created everything, which already instills that God had intention. When he created, it wasn't just, just because. Isaiah 43 speaks of the redeemed of Israel, and in verse 7, it reads, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So as we look at where mindfulness being displayed in the psalm, God has created and he's formed and he's called his people. When God formed man, the command was given to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. God is mindful in that he created us, period. If we want to know how does God care for us, how does he think of us, he created us in the first place. God has formed us from the inside out. As we heard in Psalm 139 uh, that Richard spoke a couple months ago, there's not a part of us that he didn't form together. Language in verse 15 of Psalm 139 says that we are intricately woven in the depths of the earth. So God was mindful in creating and forming us, and lest we forget, we were created in God's image, Genesis 1.27. That's what makes man different than the rest of creation, that we were created in God's image, the image of God, the majesty of God. We were created in his image. God has always been mindful of his creation, before even the foundation of the world, as we read in Ephesians 1. And we know that God has shown care to his people through every page of scripture and every moment of history. All creation testifies of the Lord and his greatness and his majesty, and in that the Lord has shown abundant grace and he's shown mercy towards his creation, in that he remains faithful to his promises as we went through the story of Abraham in Genesis, we know that God is faithful. At this time, God's people would have had the Torah, so David would have known the Torah, Genesis to Deuteronomy, and they would have known, he would have known the promises of God and how God had remained faithful up to this point. Forefathers such as Abraham, whom God promised to make the father of many nations, where in Genesis 15, 5, as we remember, the Lord said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able. And it goes on to say, so shall your offspring be. God remains true to that promise and he remains true to every promise that he makes. Every covenant that God has made with his people, he does for care for them, to provide for them. Let's go to the second point, B, Meekness in Psalm 8.5. Psalm 8.5, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. The psalmist uses the term heavenly beings. So the ESV footnotes this term and replaces heavenly beings with God, or it also mentions the Septuagint, which uses the term angels. So heavenly, heavenly beings is a translation of the Hebrew term Elohim. Though throughout the Old Testament, the same term is used to refer to the one true God. So Elohim is a title of God. So regardless of translation, the truth remains that the Lord has made us, mankind, lower than himself. Made us a little lower than the heavenly beings. We are not God, and we cannot be God, as we know. Though we know this temptation led to mankind disobeying God in Genesis 3, which we will touch on. You and I would not make a good God. If we're real with ourselves, we would not make a good God. 
So why did God make us lower than himself? Why did he make us lower than the angels? Jesus, the son of God and the son of man, tells us in Matthew Matthew 5, verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We know meekness to be in submissiveness, humble submissiveness. God blessed us with making us lower so that we would not be full of jealousy, but we see that we may inherit the earth. So remember Genesis 127, God created us in his image. So if God's image is majesty, his image is ruler, his image is Lord, this does not mean for us that we're now all divine filled, that we are the majesty, we're ruler of all the earth. That's not what this means. But when the psalmist says that God has crowned him, referring to mankind with glory and honor, in verse 5 of our text, this means that we are placed with the responsibility of bearing God's image. So we mere weak humans who are nothing without God. We know if God didn't create us, we're nothing. Nothing can compare to how great God is. But caring for his creation, ruling over it, just as he is righteous to us, we know that God has, God's majesty is how we understand his majesty and how we know it today. So just as we have seen the Lord's righteousness, we know it in ourselves. So let's go to point C, where this will make a little more sense. Man's responsibility. So verses 6 to 8 of Psalm 8. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So God has entrusted us with his creation to govern it, to rule it. Creation, ruling creation. It's an interesting concept, but it is very true. It should appear to us that if God's majesty, if it's in all the earth, if it's set above the heavens, and even empowers the words of young infants to defeat the enemies and the avengers to steal them, that it seems a little questionable with God and his power why he needs us. Genesis one twenty eight says, And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we can notice the very much similarity uh, between Psalm 8 and Genesis 1.28. But notice what that verse starts off with. And God blessed them. Mankind has been blessed by God, just as Jesus spoke in Matthew 5 about the regard to the meek, that they shall inherit the earth. So after each day of creation, God said it was good. But scripture says that God blessed man and that creation also differs in that at the end of the sixth day, when man was created, God said it was very good. Genesis one thirty one. So God does not need his creation. It can be said that creation needs God, of course. It's dependent on him. The majestic name of the Lord has dominion over all of creation, all of existence. So in his majesty, the Lord delights in sharing his glory and his honor with his creation in which he bestows the special privilege of being blessed and having dominion over his creation so that the Lord's majesty may be proclaimed through us. So as we are entrusted with dominion, 
The psalmist also adds in verse 6, you have put all things under his feet. If we go back to Genesis and look at chapter 3, we know that man is cursed because of its disobedience to the Lord and his command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. When the psalmist used the reference of everything beneath his feet, this verse must have come across the mind of David if he knew the words of the Lord up to this point. This promise of offspring to crush the serpent's head was the promise of the Lord that maintained through every covenant that God made with his people in the old covenant, through Noah, through Abraham, through Moses, through David, and it didn't even end there. This was the awaited promise that David would not see in his lifetime. We know that God promised that from the Davidic line there would be a king who would rule forevermore. But David would go through the rest of the entirety of his life not knowing the fulfillment of this promise. We know that in Isaiah 7, 14, this promise is stated once again, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So David may have just used this term underneath uh, your feet as a reference to God's supremacy, his greatness above opposition against the enemy and the avenger, as we have seen. Or maybe it could just be that David... It could just be that David knew that the battle had already been won, that the Lord already had complete dominion, that dominion and power belonged to the Lord and would remain the same forevermore. Let's go to this fourth point. Majestic is your name. So let's read Psalm 8, verse 9, the last verse of this song. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So as we have noticed, we, if we look at the psalm here, we see that verse 1 and verse 9 are a repeat of one another. This is called an inclusio for those Bible college students who are here today, which in basic terms means that the same or similar statement is used at, to, take, to be the beginning and the end of a section of Scripture. So the psalmist uses this repeat as a helpful reminder and kind of a recap for the reader and the hearers of the psalm. The Lord is majesty. In his majesty, he created all things. His name is majesty. So his majestic name is in all of creation. It declares his name, whether it be in all the earth, as we see in verse 1, above the heavens, out of the mouths of babies, as we see in verse 2, in the moon and stars in verse 3, through image bearers of God's image, as we see alighted to in verse 5, or through the sheep, the oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds, the fish, and whatever creature passes along the depths of the sea in verses 7 and 8. God's majesty is in all of it. So God's majesty is not just a characteristic or an attribute of God that can just be recognized and then we move on as, okay, God's majesty, that's, that's it. If God is majesty... If his name is majestic, if he's the ruler, if he's the sovereign king of kings and lord of lords, that means that we are his people. We're his servants, his loyal subjects. Think think of a king, king and a queen and their servants who obey their command. 
that means that we are to submit to the will of the Lord, to submit to his command, which means praising him in his majesty, carrying out his command of dominion and rule, which has been bestowed upon our heads, as we see referenced in verse 5, as he crowns us with glory and with honor. So our second last point here, Christ in Psalm 8. Now, not much has been said in regard to Jesus Christ. It has been lightly mentioned, but I was intentional in withholding it to this point. I mentioned before that Psalm 8 was a mirroring of the first chapters of Genesis and related to the disloyalty that arises that God did not stay loyal to its ruler. It disobeyed. It did not submit to its command. Within Psalm 8, God's majesty and his command for man's dominion are the same. God never changes, and his word never changes. God never, he remains the same from beginning to end forevermore. The moment where disloyalty comes in is Genesis 3, as we established, when the serpent deceived man in making it appear that man could have a greater dominion than what God had promised. We see the serpent, the devil, seeking dominion over what God has created as good. Just as we would see with the enemy and the avenger, again, they seek their own dominion, not submitting to a higher authority. The selfish desire to rule and destroy what God has made. Man was instructed by God. He was crowned with glory and honor of bearing the Lord's name and having dominion over all of the earth. But when man acted against the Lord's command, against his lordship, this picture of perfect dominion was distorted. You and I desired more than what the Lord, our Lord, had granted to us. God crowned us, but we wanted a greater crown, the one that we could put upon our own heads. We cannot rule with dominion if we first do not subject ourselves to our true Lord, to God's lordship and to his rule. God's name is the highest name, the name above all names, and his name has all dominion and power and lordship over all of creation. God remains, as we have said over and over, he's the sovereign ruler over all things he rules. He rules in majesty, and he has the standard of full submissiveness and requires us to have dominion with glory to his name. But we know that we cannot have dominion on our own strength. As we look through this psalm, we see that th- this is identical to what God commanded us in the beginning. But we did not obey the Lord. So what happens now? The psalm calls for restoration of some sort. Restoration back to how God originally intended everything to be. So how does this come all to fulfillment? In Christ. Jesus came to redeem God's people who instead of being in dominion were bound to dominion by sin and death. When we disobeyed God, man was cursed. The curse of sin, the curse of death, pain, sorrow. We cannot live out Psalm 8 on our own volition. We cannot submit to the Lord's majesty. We can't honor his name on our own. We can't be humble servants of our Lord and King on our own. We cannot have dominion. We cannot care for it. We cannot bear God's name on our own because we know that we tried. But Genesis 3, we failed. We were filled with pride. But 
We know that this is all fulfilled in Christ, that the wonderful news is that Christ, in Christ, we are able to do all that the Lord has commanded to us. So if you can turn to Hebrews 2, 5 to 10, this will explain a bit of why Christ is the fulfillment of Psalm why he's the fulfillment of all things. So Hebrews 2, 5 to 10. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. Now we see the repeat of Psalm 8, where the author of Hebrews uses these words. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for who a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, (coughs) crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The author of Hebrews literally applies these words from David in Psalm 8 to Jesus Christ and reveals to us that it is only in Christ that the words of the psalmist can come to true fulfillment. So those first four verses, from verses 5 to 8, these repeat the words of the psalmist and are in reference to man, mankind. So if we look again, we can see that what is man that you are mindful? You made him a little lower than the angels, as we read in Psalm 8. You have crowned with glory and with honor, placed everything under subjection, under his feet, But then in these later verses, we see the reference to Christ. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection, but we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels. Jesus, who is crowned with glory and with honor. And because of his suffering of death, by his death, the grace of God might, he might taste death for everyone. So, This means that the lordship that has been granted to us, this is all through Christ. It was because that Christ suffered for us. It was that Christ submitted to the Lord's will. He had perfect lordship, perfect dominion. This means that in Christ, we are able to share in this. We are able to fulfill the command that God has given to us in Genesis and Psalm 8 to have dominion, to praise his majestic name. We're able to do all this, but only, only in Christ. So let's go to our last point, and that's already, not yet. What does this all mean for us? If we're able to live out Psalm 8, we're able to do this in Christ, how do we practically do this? What does this mean in the big meaning of all things? So as we know in Christ, all things are already in subjection. Now he's read in Hebrews 2, but it is not yet that we have not seen all things in subjection. So in Christ, God's people can fulfill Psalm 8, as we've established. We can bear the Lord's name 
we can have dominion over what God has entrusted to us. We simply do what the psalmist declares. If we're asking ourselves, how do we do this? We do exactly what Psalm 8 says. We praise the Lord. We praise his majestic name in all the earth. In all of creation, we have dominion. We care for the God, God's creation. We continue to see the revealing of all creation in subjection to Christ as we live today. The slow revealing of all things coming to God's subjection where his dominion through Christ, we are able to see this. We're able to share in it. Let's turn to Ephesians 3. And I want to read verses 8 to 11. And this will be our last uh, passage here. And this really portrays well what God's command to us and why we are able to do this in Christ. So Ephesians 3, and we'll read verses 8 to 11. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to life for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we as the church, we are entrusted to make known this truth of what is to come, to declare the amazing riches that we have in Christ, these blessings of honor and glory that is crowned upon us. We're able to declare that God is the creator of all things and that he is bringing all things to subjection under the feet of man, but not on our own volition because of Christ. This is so that God's truth and the wisdom, the manifold wisdom of God as we read, can be made known to all peoples on this earth, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places, so that all creation on earth and heaven, on that day when Christ returns to bring his sons to glory, we can all say in unison, O Lord, Our Lord, how majestic is your name when all things are brought to dominion under the Lord's feet. So as we go out the rest of today, may we ask ourselves, and may we ask one another, is all creation groaning? Is a new creation coming? Is the glory of the Lord in the heavens to be the light within our midst? And is it good that we remind ourselves of this? So as we sing this last song, Is He Worthy? May we proclaim to one another and to all the world, He is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave from every people and tribe, every nation and tongue. He has made us a kingdom and priests to God to reign with the Son, to reign forevermore. Is He worthy of this? He is. He is. Let's pray. Lord, you are our God. You are the creator of all things. And Lord, how blessed are we that you bless us so richly. You crown us with honor and glory. You bestow.
bestow upon us the opportunity to have dominion over your creation, your perfect creation, that will become perfect on that day. Lord, may we not go from this day not being challenged to evaluate, are we serving our king? Are we being a humble servant just as Christ set the example for us? May it be true for us that we can live out these words of Psalm 8 and not because of ourselves, but Christ in us, yet not I, but Christ in me. So may we honor, may we glorify you as we go from this day. May we care, may we have dominion over the creation you have promised to bestow to us. And may we praise your majestic name in all the earth so that all may praise your name forevermore. Praise the Son in Jesus' name. Amen. Music team.